Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. This is The Salty Pastor, a podcast designed for the person who is tired of being told what to believe and wants to know for themselves. Mm. It is for people who want to pursue a dynamic faith in Jesus Christ and go to the original text that talks about who he is, what he said, and why he said it. On this podcast, you will find an in-depth analysis of the historical context in which Jesus lived, as well as the philosophical constructs of Greek, Roman, and Jewish philosophy in which he taught. If you are interested in knowing what the Bible actually says, and you're ready to grab a hold of your own faith, then The Salty Pastor is your podcast. My name is Jesse Mayer. I'll be your host. And without further ado, (laughs) let's welcome our very own Salty Pastor, Dr. Douglas Peak. I've always wondered what further ado means adieu. is that french doesn't adieu it, it, adieu is french i don't know uh, it always I mean, makes me think of uh sound of music adieu <laughs> to you and you and you and you <laughs> so maybe uh somebody out there could give us a little uh insight throw it in Someone the comments french major yeah or, tell us what does adieu mean like without further ado is that without further pause without further wait Without further, I don't know. Of the many alphabet soup you have after your name, <laughs> French is not one of the things you French have French is studied. not. No, I, I have one uh, French word that I, I think I know, and that is formidable. Is that formidable? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are coming to the end of our study of Philippians, and today we will be going through chapter 4. In two days, we're going to be celebrating Thanksgiving 2020, and I think many people are struggling to give thanks this Thanksgiving. 2020 has not been a great year um, for a lot of people. How can we be thankful in a year where everything is going so bad? And the answer is found in the book of Philippians. Mm -hmm. Therefore, the study of the book of Philippians is desperately needed in these times, times like this. It is all about joy and how you can love, uh, live being blessed even when you're stressed. So, Pastor Doug, why do you think it's important to pursue happiness and joy when everything seems to be going so bad? Well, the pursuit of happiness is one of the most important things that every person pursues in life. It's about meaning. It's about hope. It's about purpose. And the reason why is because our souls are created for joy. C.S. Lewis uh, makes this point quite often. He says we were designed for joy. So almost every human pursuit of the human heart, whether it's in the direction of God or the direction of the world, has to do with trying to bring joy into a person's life. So it seems to me that Paul really believes this because chapter 4 seems like a command to be happy at all times. Uh, how is this possible? <laughs> <laughs> well, the fourth chapter of Philippians revealed some very important things that culminate his teaching to the church of Philippi. Everything uh, so far has been all about an attitude or a baseline of joy. And what we talked about throughout this entire series is that there's a difference between our mood and a difference between our attitude of joy. And when we focus on changing our mood, our baseline never goes up or down. And in in reality, in my opinion, as I've seen over time, is that your uh, baseline attitude actually goes down when you focus only on changing your mood. So if you focus on changing your 
attitude, that baseline attitude, which you always regress to the mean, meaning you always come back to that average or that normal of where you're at, is critically important. And Paul says in chapters 1, 2, and 3, all of the principles he lays out on how to do this, and he kind of lays his argument this way in chapter 1, he challenges us to define our reason for existence. And he says there in chapter 1, verse 24, to me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And he says, the only way to define my reason for existence is in Jesus Christ. And then he, once he says that, he goes, now, once you define your reason for existence, you can develop a baseline attitude of joy by emulating or following the example of the attitude that Jesus had in the incarnation. Meaning when he left heaven, he didn't hold on to equality with God. He came here, took the form of a bondservant, and in humility, he gave his life as a sacrifice for us. So right after that, he points the, the things that pull down that baseline attitude of joy once we follow the example of Christ and things like uh, complaining and grumbling, but most importantly, not taking our faith seriously. He says, if you don't take your faith seriously, if you don't work it out in fear and trembling, then you're going to miss out on a high joy attitude in life. He says, now the path to increasing your joy in life is choosing the right focus. And by knowing that Jesus was his primary focus, he didn't put it on his achievements, but he put it on knowing Christ. And this makes all the difference. Last week, Pastor Harv showed us how the way we maintain our attitude of joy, how we uh, continue the standard to which we have obtained is through discipleship or mentorship. We're not intended to do this all on our own. If you haven't listened to the message portion of uh, Sunday's message, I encourage you to go back and do so. And then, and then this final chapter is where Paul starts to encapsulate this argument that he's been laying out, these uh, principles. He ties them all together with a command in verse 4, and that is, Rejoice, again I say to you, rejoice. So that's really the key verse of this chapter, and he gives us about three ways in which to do that. That's awesome. So let's actually dig into these three ways in which we shine like stars and maintain our attitude of joy. So I'm going to read from chapter four. Uh, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Eodia Eodia. and Syntyk. And Syntyk. And I plead with Syntyk to be uh, of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, interesting, present in your request to Mm -hmm. God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Why do you always give me the hard words, Pastor Doug? (laughs) I guess these are names, not words. It's one of my inside jokes with myself, I'm (laughs) sure. No, in verses 1 through 3, what you see, Paul is talking uh, to two ladies, Euodia and Syntek. He loves these ladies. And evidently what had happened is these women had become a part of the church, and they had labored with him, and they had done a lot of good things, but they had a conflict that they couldn't resolve. Okay, and so he is basically saying, you guys need to stop quarreling. 
Okay, so there's a little power struggle between these two ladies. And then what he does is in verse 4, he kind of pulls us back to the overall command for the whole book, and that is rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice, for the Lord is near. And that's that's an important thing is the command is to always rejoice because Jesus Christ is near us. Not only is he with us and near right now in this present age, but he's near in his returning, I believe, he's he's kind of uh, alluding to as well. And so what he does is if we're going to rejoice, the first step in doing this is to keep anxiety and worry at bay. So if you're in a conflict with somebody, your worry goes up, right? And what I have noticed is that the number one thing people worry about is conflict more than anything else. It's having conflicts with people or or having uh, quarrels and disagreements with people or letting people down or not living up to their own expectations or things going poorly. So people worry a lot. There's a lot of anxiety that revolves around these types of things. But Paul is saying rejoice in the Lord always and you need to deal with anxiety and worry because what it does is even though everyone struggles with it at some level, the one thing we know for certain is that worry and anxiety will pull down your baseline attitude of joy. You can't rejoice always if you're worried and filled with anxiety. So the only antidote for worry, the only antidote for anxiety, he says, is to deepen your trust and faith in Jesus Christ through prayer and petition. So I guess here's my question. I, on the one hand, am am committed to my job and doing a good job. I'm committed to my family. I'm committed to my friends. But because I'm committed to those things, I I tend to be concerned about doing well at those things, Mm -hmm. making sure I'm I'm doing them what's right, investing in the right things, um, making sure my time's spent well. I don't want to let anyone down. Mm-hmm. It's a serious concern of mine. So <laughs> No, you don't no, say. You, nobody who knows me would say that about me. But I, I worry about these things, right? I don't want to uh-huh. let people down. I want to do a good job in all these different things that I'm committed to. So how can I be committed to doing a good job or being a good friend or being a good family member and not worry about my job and friends and family at the same time. Like, how do I how do I balance that equation? Well, that's a really great question because a lot of people, part of our humanness is that we use worry and sometimes uh, even anxiety to do a good job. If we worry about it, then we will do. I, I remember uh, here's an anecdote: is uh, when I had kids, uh, I. In order for me, like, you you know, you're exhausted, you lay down at night and you're thinking, man, I need to go and do something, you know, make sure the house is locked up or I'm going to remove anything from the car that my kids could choke on or something like that. You know, when I was younger, I would go, oh, I'll just do it later. Of course, I always forget. And then so what I would do is I would I would tell myself, well, if I don't go and check the house, somebody's going to break in and steal one of my kids. So I would cause myself to worry about it, to motivate myself to get out of bed and go do what I needed to do. So people do that. I I think we do that a lot. It's like if I don't worry about it, then I'll ignore it. Right. Right. 
Is that true? Do you feel that? Yeah, I would say. I would say. I feel like if it's if I'm not worried about it, then no one else is thinking about it, and it's not going to happen, which will then end in some catastrophe. And I know you so well that sometimes if you're not worried about something, that worries you. Yeah, there's Sundays where everything's going fine here at the church. And because everything's going fine, I then start stressing because I'm like, I haven't had the crises of the morning yet. So that means (laughs) it's it's going to come at a more inconvenient time. But that is, you got to admit that that's funny. That is, is that it's funny everything is now when I'm not stressed <laughs> out about something, but. but everything's going so well. I'm worried because it's going so well. But, uh, but you know, this is why, though, I think a strong faith, a courageous faith, a confident faith, an adventurous faith is so critical because what you're talking about is something so real that all of us experience every single day. And faith is the answer. If, if, if success in any endeavor relies 100% on you or me then, and your effort, then what you're doing is you're opening yourself up to extreme worry and anxiety, primarily because you know that you are imperfect. So if you're relying solely on yourself to make something happen and go well, you're putting a lot of pressure on yourself, which is worry, right? And what happens is there's an incongruence in there because you know something about yourself. You know you're imperfect and you know you can't see every angle or predict the future. You can't predict what's going to go wrong. I do I do accept that challenge on a daily basis. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny right there. Um, what happens, though, is the old adage becomes true, and that is the best laid plans run afoul. And no matter how hard we plan, no matter how much we, we, we want things to go well, something will go wrong. But when your faith is strong, it gives you a confidence to go out and keep trying, to keep building, to keep innovating, to to keep developing, to keep being adventurous because you're not afraid of failure. You're not afraid of the things that will go wrong because you have this deep trust in the Lord. And there's a credible freedom in being committed to doing a good job, being committed and in, in wanting to be responsible to making great things happen, to build something new, to innovate something new, to solve a problem nobody has ever solved, to have the confidence that you could do that. It's a wonderful thing. And that's why a deep and strong, courageous faith is so important because it allows you to commit, take responsibility for without being crushed by your innate knowledge of your own flaws and insecurities because satan will try to use those to get you to stop but if you have a strong and powerful faith you can step out and you can experience and innovate and challenge and try again and again and again regardless of how often you fail there was a monastery in the in the 14th century and i can't think of the name right now but they had a phrase and the phrase was basically it's not whether we fall it's how we get up there's a old cowboy adage of you know 
you're going to fall off the horse, but it's, you know, getting back on. Yeah. That matters. Get back on and ri- riding it again. Yeah. So yeah. Cowboys are really, always falling off their horses. Yes, they're always falling <laughs> off the horses, and they have the wisdom of monastery monks, apparently. Yeah, but they got it from somewhere. <laughs> I'm so, so there's incredible freedom in this uh, faith-filled approach because what it does is it allows you— notice how he says, petition the Lord, pray, and that is the process by which you cast off anxiety so you don't have to be anxious for anything even though you know you're you could fail in your endeavor well let's move on to verses eight and nine and see what the second thing that we can do out of these three things um, in order to keep a constant attitude of joy in our lives so moving on to verse eight finally brothers and sisters whatever is true whatever is noble whatever is right whatever is pure whatever is lovely whatever is admirable If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Now, these are very popular verses that are often quoted that Paul authored. And at the very end there, uh, verse 9, he says, Whatever you've seen from me... Put it into practice. And this is what Pastor Harv was talking about is why discipleship and mentorship is so important is because that's what allows us to live out. Right. What we've learned. Uh, the, the, the other words that he speaks become even more powerful when you see them in the context in which they were written. He is challenging us to rejoice always and to live a life without worry and anxiety by strengthening our faith through prayer and petition. And so now he tells us the second way in order to live an an ongoing high level of joy in every moment is to do it through a mental focus. And I believe that this is a lost art. Uh, The capacity for mental focus is what has brought civilization as far as it has come. And this capacity, this ethic or principle is a uniquely Christian principle or ethic. Here is once again the effect of postmodern way of thinking that we have trained so many people on. And that is in America today, America is the most affluent nation in the history of the world. And that's really important. And that is, is that even people who are the poorest in America live better than the kings of qu- and queens of the 15th century, just 500 years ago lived. Oh, wow. And their life expectancy and their health care is so much better. But if you talk to people today in America, it's like falling apart, the worst thing ever. We're all, you know, it, it, there's a whole bunch of chicken little attitude running around, right? right. Everybody is, it's all this uh, horrific anxiety. And, and that's what's amazing to me as a millennial generation has the highest levels of anxiety. They worry and worry. Why is that? Well, when you really understand philosophy, it's not hard to understand. They were taught to think as postmodern deconstructionists. And what that does is it, it basically makes you a skeptic. And what skepticism does is ultimately it robs your life of all joy and all happiness. It lowers that baseline attitude so low you can't see anything else. If you become an expert at deconstructing things, you undermine your own capacity to believe, your own capacity to hope, your own capacity to love. You simply are a cynic about everything. And this has just been documented over and over again that nihilism, this 
this despair has always been a problem for secular thinkers. And it's probably why the suicide rate is the highest it's ever been in the most affluent nation in the history of the world. So is Paul just advocating, you know, positive thinking or is it something more than that? Well, if you've not defined the reason for your existence in Jesus Christ, all the positive thinking in the world is worthless. It's absolutely worthless because at its core, you know, the outcome depends solely on you and you know you better than anyone else. Right. Right. You know you better than anyone else. And what you know about you is that you're flawed and that all of the happy thoughts are not going to bring happiness, right? You're trying to change your mood. So it's something much more deeper than that. This is at the level of your soul. And Paul says, you set your mind on these things. And he's not telling you to take an internal inventory of your own awesomeness and then thinking about how your awesomeness is going to get you a good life. What Paul is talking about are things that exist eternally outside of yourself. Look at the words he uses, truth. Well, the reason why today in America so many people are filled with anxiety and worry and despair and they're skeptics and cynics is because they have been taught that there is no objective truth in which to believe. It's your own truth, your own narrative. And so there's a logical fallacy there. So that's why... Positive thinking doesn't work, right? Uh, Number two, he talks, think about what is right. Okay, if I'm making up what's right for myself, what I think is right, the the other person doesn't think is right. If I may quote Rocket from Guardians of the Galaxy at the very end. I love pop culture references. (laughs) You love that? Where they're asking, you know, he says, hey, because of what you guys did, your criminal records have been expunged. But if you commit a crime from this point forward, you will be held accountable. And Rocket goes, what if I see something that somebody else has and I want it and I take it? He says, that's stealing. That's a crime. But what if I want it more than they do? (laughs) (laughs) He goes, it's still crime. And then so, you know, Gamora goes, okay, Rocket, be quiet. And, And that's the point. Is that if you, how can you be committed to something that's right when you make up your own right? Mm. You know, it's what I want. And since I want it more than they do, then it's more right. That's just ridiculous. I mean, that's absurd. So what Paul is saying is, look, whatever's lovely is something that exists outside of you. Whatever's right, whatever is true, whatever is pure. These are things that exist outside of you. If you try to make up your own truth, if you try to make your own loveliness, your own righteousness, what you are is a conglomerate of selfish instincts, wants and desires. And that is the quickest way to live a life of despair. And so this is really, really important to understand that when I focus on things that come from outside of me, these are things that come from God. These are revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And when I set my mind on those things, then I can see my soul at its very core of my being begin to change and my attitude of joy goes up. This is why on the deepest research they find that people deeply committed to their faith, practicing their faith every single day, always rank on the happiness index at the very top. Hmm. Well, let's move on to our third thing. Uh, Verse 10 continues on. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. 
I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. So what's happening here, and, and how does this reveal the third thing that allows us to live in joy, Pastor Doug? Well, now we see why Epaphroditus, in the latter half of chapter 2, came to visit Paul. Remember, he talks about Timothy, I'd like to send you, and Epaphroditus this is the only place where his name shows up. And he got really sick. And so the people in Philippi were concerned, and oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Paul was concerned. We talked about that. So, well, he obviously was an influential part of the Philippian church. And when the Philippian church heard that Paul was in prison, they took up a collection of money for Paul. And Epaphroditus was the person who delivered it to Paul. And so that is really, I think, a significant thing. If you look down later in the chapter, what you will see uh, uh, in verse 14, he goes on to say, it was good of you to share in my troubles. He says, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out for Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once. And then verse 18, he says, I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied. So what he's saying here is that and his generosity was expressed from the Philippian church. It was given to Epaphroditus. He brought it to Paul. He gets sick. After he delivers it, then he gets better, and now he's going to send this letter. More than likely, he's going to give it to Epaphroditus, and he's going to carry it back to the church and have it read. And he's thanking them for sending this monetary gift. And they had a habit of doing this. They supported him over and over again. And it's a side note, too, is that the Philippian church was predominantly Roman, and they were wealthy. And so these people funded a lot of Paul's ministry throughout the entire Roman Empire where he would go and plant churches. They probably funded his capacity to write much of the New Testament. And mm. so because you had to buy paper and ink, and that's really expensive stuff. Right. And so... So they supplied the need. So it, so what a blessing it was to have these people who were blessed with earthly possessions with money. Uh, they were given these blessings by God, and they used them then and built uh, or, or invested in in uh, a ministry to Paul, which has blessed us for 2,000 years that we can actually read what he wrote. So it's such an amazing thing, their generosity that they reflected. And so... I think the principle here is this living generously out of concern for others is how you maintain a high baseline attitude of joy. It's how you can rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. If you remember early on, we talked about the study uh, that started in 1945. It the University of Harvard, they took all of these graduates and then they tracked them out through their entire life. And George Valiant, the psychologist that started it, he wrote a book and published it. And in it, he says, the one conclusion of this massive study, it was over decades and decades and decades, is that happiness is love, full stop. 
He says, that's it. It all comes down to happiness is love. Mm. And authentic happiness is not what you get, for that's consumerism. It's what you give, what you build, and what you invest in. So Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So the goal of a truly happy life is about growing the size of your heart. And when you give and you're generous, either with your time or with your financial resources, you live a life of generosity. And I mean habitual generosity. You get on a a discipline of doing it. That's why tithing is so awesome. It just keeps you on that discipline whenever you have an increase or you get paid or whatever. You give a, a percent to the Lord. It just keeps you on that. And that people don't realize how that discipline molds and shapes your heart over a long period of time your your heart begins to grow because you're invested in whatever is noble you're invested in whatever is right you're invested in whatever is pure lovely of good reputation all of these things that are outside of you right and so generous living is how you guarantee and i use that word Uh, intentionally you guarantee a much higher level of joy throughout your entire life i have read all the research on it and i have also read many many books i've read so many things and i have never once heard a person say to me i have given everything away and blessed so many people's lives and it was the worst thing that ever happened to me (laughs) you know people who live generous lives look back and go I, I wish I could have done more. You know, they always say this. I wish I could have given away more. I wish I would have started giving more I w- earlier in my life. You know, mm-hmm. that, that is just, that is one of the most important things. And the other thing too is this, is this is why young people have a hard time falling in love. This is why they have a hard time falling in love. And you're going to ask, why is that? Why is that? <laughs> I'm feeling targeted. <laughs> No, I'm not targeting you at all. The reason why is because when your way of thinking is molded and shaped by the culture, which has happened to all of us. So we all have that in common, right? And that is, is that what women tend to look for in men is confidence, right? And ambition, because that's important to them, and generosity, because if he's ambition, ambitious and confident, but he has practice of no generosity, then he's selfish. And she doesn't want to be with a man who's selfish, okay? Mm. On the other side of the stick, men go out with women and want women to, uh, to take care of themselves. They want women who uh, are ambitious as well, who are confident. Well, they're not insecure. They want that in a woman, but they don't want a woman who is not generous because if a woman is not generous, then what that says to him is that she's only concerned about the way she looks and how she is presenting herself to the world. So she's, she's always wanting to be attractive. She's never wanting to be committed. Mm. And so see, this is really important. This is why generosity is so critical when you're young. Even if you're a college student and you don't have any money and you say, okay, I'm going to give $10 a month or $20 a month to God. What it does is it calibrates your heart towards whatever is lovely, whatever is pure, whatever is of good reputation. And that's the best thing that could ever happen to you in your search for love. 
You see, because you you're not going to find what you want. You find what you are and you don't fall in love with what you want. You tend to fall in love with what you are. So if you're really unhealthy and you're kind of toxic and selfish, then you're probably going to attract in someone who is exactly like you. So the best thing to do for your love life is to grow your own heart. Right. Mm. And the more you grow your own heart, guess what happens? Then the more open you are to what God wants to do and more people, uh, as we call options, come into your life. (laughs) (laughs) Well, are there any uh, other specific takeaways for today before we conclude this series, um, at least in the podcast forum on Thursday? Yeah, we're going to talk a lot more about some of the science of happiness and how we can always live joyfully and how you can counteract uh, by growing your faith, some of these things that our culture, the postmodern deconstructionist thing has kind of done to us. So I'm looking forward to that. Well, thank you guys for joining us. Um, we will be having another episode of Salty Pastor on Thanksgiving. So if you've got family over, whether you're doing socially distanced or if you are having people in the house, um, maybe share them, share that with them because this is some good stuff that we're um, wanting to share with as many people as possible. And what a great way to think about Thanksgiving than talking about how blessed you are like we do here on the Salty Pastor. So thank you for joining us. Make sure you uh, like and subscribe if you're watching on YouTube. Leave a review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. Otherwise, if you're on Spotify or one of those other platforms, just send us good vibes. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. Five stars, baby. Blessings, everyone, and thank you for joining us.